continuing drama in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Senate regarding the confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, because we've been talking about it all week, and it's a a topic that is annoying to me. It's extremely irritating that this is such a persistent story, but if I'm being honest, if I'm being objective in my analysis of the, the news that I'm consuming today... This is still the most newsworthy thing happening right now, both in terms of its its consequence. You know, the outcome of all this, how this plays out is going to tell us a lot about where we stand in terms of the functionality of our republic. You know, I heard uh, or at least I saw I didn't have time to really take it all in someone online making the case against confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees. And, you know, I, I did a cursory examination their first couple of points, and they were on to something. I mean, the, 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 the question that is raised is, what is the point of this process as it currently stands? Like, in the post-Bork world, in the, the scenario that we find ourselves in now, like, what is the legitimate governmental function, political function, that is served by Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees. Now, you know, it wasn't being suggested by this individual on social media, nor is it being suggested by me, that the Senate doesn't actually confirm, doesn't actually provide advice and consent as they're constitutionally required to the president for their nominee. It's merely suggested that you can do that without having these bread and circuses televised hearings which just serve as a platform for preening and posturing and kabuki theater. Like you could, you could have a process that's more straightforward, an up or down vote on the merits of the nominee without having this, this theater that takes place around it. And yeah, I, I'd be more than willing to entertain that argument because, you know, it, honestly, at this point, what, what are we gaining out of this particular moment, out of this week, this week that we've been focused on? This 36-year-old story that became an allegation mere days ago. And apparently, it, we, we all got to take it so seriously. This is the, probably the most annoying thing about this whole thing to me is how we're continually being bombarded with the exhortation that we all need to take this seriously when the gal herself, Christine Ford, hasn't taken it seriously for 36 years. She just started taking it seriously, quote-unquote, on Sunday. But the rest of us are supposed to stop the presses, stop what we're doing, hold up constitutional processes, not vote on the next nominee for the Supreme Court because she decided to get serious about something three days ago that happened 36 years ago. That's a little difficult to swallow. And it's it's... It's unbelievable to me that there's any sort of credibility lent to the Democrats' side of this argument. It's something that is so transparently partisan, so transparently political, that there's no conceivable way to interpret it 
as a legitimate attempt to get to the truth or to pursue some sort of criminal investigation or get to the heart of a matter or to protect victims or to uphold the principles upon which Me Too was born. None of that is apparent in this process. It's obviously a fraud. The whole thing from start to finish. And I don't understand why we can't just treat it that way. Now, there are some indications that Republican senators are growing a backbone. And then, in fact, we may be able to put this thing behind us sooner than later. But it's not going to happen without some brinksmanship between now and, you know, possibly next Monday, possibly next Thursday, depending upon which account you listen to. Let's go through them here tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. And catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop up. You can contribute tonight, share your frustration or your disagreement or your insights into the Kavanaugh situation, 651-989-5855. Brad Homeland takes those calls and produces the show. So for headlines, let's start over at ABC News. The overarching message from Republicans Wednesday to Christine Blasey Ford, show up or we're heading to a vote. She said she wanted to appear, but if she changes her mind and refuses to appear, there's not much we can do. The number two Republican in the Senate, John Cornyn of Texas, said of the California professor who alleges Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her when they were both in high school. We can't force her to do that, Cornyn said, and so nothing really else would remain of the investigation and background of the judge, and we would vote on the nomination. Now, just on its face... Like, that's that's just true, right? Like, there's nothing... I, I don't know how you interpret that position taken by John Cornyn as anything other than just plainly true. Like, if she she's the one making the accusation, and she's, she's not raising it in the context of pursuing criminal charges because there are no criminal charges to pursue. Like, even... Even in the event that she had a case that this actually happened, there's a statute. There's no federal law that's been broken, and there's a statute of limitations uh, in the state where it occurred. So there's no criminal case to pursue. So this is strictly being discussed in the context of its relevance to Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to be on the Supreme Court. That's the context in which she's raising it. And so if she's not willing to come to the Senate to testify in the confirmation hearings, then what What else are we supposed to do? Like, what's the next step? There's, there's no, there is no logical progression uh, or logical reaction to an accusation that's been made in the press and social media, but that's not willing to be put on the record in the form of a confirmation hearing. So, you know, this strikes me as relatively uncontroversial, the position that Republicans are taking here. Show up, or we're not going to have a hearing on Monday. But that's not quite the end of it. From the Star Tribune, Christine Blasey Ford may testify against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. After all, her attorney said this on Thursday today, breathing new life 
into the prospect of a Democratic Senate showdown or a dramatic Senate showdown next week over Ford's accusation that he assaulted her when they were both in high school. The preference would be for Ford to testify next Thursday. And she, I, I, I love it. So she's, what's going to happen between Monday and Thursday that's going to make it better for, for her to testify then? And she doesn't want Kavanaugh in the same room. You know, we have this concept, you know, in, in due process, whereby if you're a defendant, if you find yourself facing grave consequence for an alleged action, that you get to face your accuser. That's a right. Like in a criminal proceeding or even a civil proceeding, that is a right that you have to face your accuser to cross-examine them, and to engage in an adversarial process to try to draw out the truth of the situation. But she doesn't want that. She wants to be able to show up and snipe with no cross-examination, without even having to be in the same room as the guy whose reputation she's smearing. Uh, that ought to be a, no, no, a blanket, no hesitation, absolutely not, should be the answer from Republicans in the Senate. This demand was put forward by her attorney, who told the Judiciary Committee staff in a 30-minute call that also touched on security concerns and other issues, according to a Senate aide who wasn't authorized to discuss the matter and spoke on condition of anonymity. Ford is willing to tell her story to the Judiciary Committee, whose senators will vote on Kavanaugh's confirmation, but only if agreement can be reached on terms that are fair and which ensure her safety. Like, what? Her safety? What do you think is going to happen in the Senate chamber, in the Senate confirmation? Do you think Kavanaugh is going to leap over the desk and charge at you? Do you think that the, the Senate security is going to allow some random ne'er-do-well to come storming into the room and attack you on for partisan reasons? Like, this is complete theater. There's no legitimacy to this whatsoever. All these terms and conditions. And here's the deal. These terms are not being offered in a good-faith attempt to get to an agreement whereby she's actually going to come and testify. This is all theatrical. This is all posturing to try to create the impression that there is some target, there is some goalpost that can be reached whereby we're going to be able to proceed with some semblance of normalcy and decency and due process. But that's not the goal. The goal is one thing and one thing only. Delay. 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 And to keep delaying until they can come up with new reasons to delay. And then to keep delaying after that until you can kick the can so far down the road that the midterm elections happen between now and when Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court or would or the vote would be taken. Let's hear from Ted in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. There's three things I wanted to talk about. Uh, first, uh, this couldn't have been a worse day for the story to come out about Keith Ellison's uh, ex-girlfriend, because, you know, the news media is going to bury the story, you know, between the weather and the Jacob Wetterling story. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're going to bury that story as far as they can. All right. The Br- bring bring us up. Bring us up to speed on that, because I might have missed what you're referring oh, to. There's his, news. His, uh, girlfriend came out today and released the hospital documents. From oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that last night. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, the second story is uh, Keith Ellison's replacement, 
this uh, smiling lady who's got a 10,000 or 100,000 watt smile. The only thing we know about her is her smile. And we're going to vote on her based on her smile. We don't know who her opponent is. I mean, I don't know yet. And uh, so, yeah, that's ridiculous. The news media is they're just ignoring the story, just hoping she'll win based on her smile. And then the third story is, you know, we're getting all these feel-good senators. And, you know, what happens? We're in a Cold War right now with China and Russia, North Korea and Iran. And, you know, what happens? We get into a war situation. we got all these feel-good senators. And are they really wartime senators? I mean, we need some military people in the Senate. And we got, you know, these happy ladies, you know, make us feel good. And it's like, really? I mean, what are they going to do in a wartime situation? Well, they're going to say, well, let's negotiate a surrender, you know. <laughs> I appreciate your thoughts, Ted. Thanks for calling the program. Man, that, that call took a, a left-hand turn. That was like a roller coaster ride. Wow. I f- yeah, I feel as though I owe him money for that entertainment. That was... That was something else. Let's talk to Anthony in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, yeah, I was calling about um, the just the whole Democrats and the way they. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was calling about the way they pick and choose. You know, I mean, uh, the way Hillary said after uh, Ambassador on Benghazi was killed uh, six months afterwards, and when she was uh, testifying before Congress. And, she said, what, this, what difference does it make? When are uh, Democrats going to say that, uh, what difference does it make what allegation happened 30 years ago? Since they're so complacent with saying what difference does it make about things that happened six months ago when our right. um, ambassadors lost their lives. Well, and it's, and, and, so, and, and even more than that, and I appreciate the call, Anthony, even more than that obvious double standard is that anybody who suggests as you know, literally every rational person has anybody who suggests that the time, the the thirty six year time period, is an issue that ought to be taken into consideration when determining the legitimacy and authenticity and credibility of this accusation. They're immediately pounced on as somehow being against women. You know, this whole notion of. Well, my favorite thing that I saw on social media today, and again, I didn't have time to to actually delve into it, but I think it was Michelle Malkin put out some video, and her thesis was, it was biblical. Her thesis was she went back to the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife? When Joseph went to Egypt, and well, went to Egypt. He was enslaved and sent to Egypt and, and uh, ended up having to serve Potiphar. And then Potiphar's wife started hitting on him and kept making passes at him. And eventually she pushed really hard to the point where he had to run away and he tore his garment as he was running away. And so, you know, feeling spurned, what did she do? She accused him of assaulting her and used the torn garment as evidence of his ill intent. And this got him thrown into prison. And Malkin's point was... Women have been lying about men assaulted them since the beginning of time, right? Like, this is the oldest story in the book. Like, this this idea, where do we come up with this notion that when a woman says a man did something to her, it's always true, and you can never call it into question. We don't require any further evidence and all sorts of due process standards or journalistic standards or political standards go completely out the window because the word of a woman, even from 36 years ago, with no substantial details, 
is the last consideration, the final word on whether or not a story is credible or not. It's an absurd standard. And yet it is the standard that's being offered by the Democrats right now. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. See, what you have to understand in order to put this drama surrounding the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh into perspective is that all this is taking place in the context of a conviction and an expressed conviction on the part of the left to do whatever it takes to thwart not just Brett Kavanaugh specifically as the nominee, but Donald Trump and the Republicans and all of their political enemies. Like it's, it's total war. That's what you have to understand. And the thing about total war is there are no rules. The rules go out the window. You know, once somebody has decided that their goal is your annihilation, they ain't stopping at nothing. They ain't taking any prisoners. There are no rules. And so all of these protestations, all, all of these expressed sentiments that attempt to make it sound as though there's some sort of reasonable accommodation that can be arrived at, whereby we're going to be able to have a sensible and decent hearing wherein Christine Ford arrives at the U.S. Senate and is able to give her testimony in in a sober and informative fashion, and that the senators are going to be able to consider her evidence and weigh it on its merits and then make an informed decision. That is not the goal. I mean, can we can we all agree on that? Like, even the lefties out there, can you can we all agree that that's not the goal here? The goal is not to actually have some sort of good faith process by which we get to the truth, right? Like, that's not the point. The point is to push back this vote to the point where it either doesn't happen at all or it happens sometime after the midterm election. That's the goal. And when you realize, when you acknowledge that that's the goal, then the sincerity of virtually all the actors on the left side of this situation collapses like there there is none it's obviously insincere from its conception all the way through from the daily caller left-wing groups funded by george soros and other major democratic donors hand out cash to protesters arrested for disrupting supreme court nominee brett kavanaugh's confirmation hearings the activists revealed monday night a coalition of activist organizations including women's march the Center for Popular Democracy, the Housing Works, have scheduled the near-constant disruptions at the Kavanaugh hearings as part of an organized effort to derail the confirmation process in a series of meetings since he was first nominated. The cash from the donor-funded groups goes toward the protesters' post- and forfeit payments, a small cash sum paid to resolve low-level misdemeanor crimes and avoid jail time. Those are just some of the details representatives from the three groups revealed in a Monday night conference call planning their next two anti-Kavanaugh protests, one on Thursday and one next Monday. Now, this is, by definition, organized crime. It's organized. I mean, they're on a conference call 
planning things in advance. It's organized and it's it's a conspiracy. You know, we're going to pay you money in order to get you bailed out because we because what does that indicate? A premeditated intention to break the law. Because, you know, unless you're going to posit the notion that people just get arrested randomly walking down the street in the United States of America for no good reason, then Obviously, your intention, if you need to organize bail money in advance, if you need to organize post and forfeit money in advance of your protest, it's because you're planning to break the law. And so these Soros-funded organizations, and again, the list, Women's March, Center for Popular Democracy, Housing Works, they they are engaged in organized crime. Now, granted, the crime in question is, you know, low-level misdemeanors, right? So it doesn't necessarily arise to the level of RICO. It doesn't necessarily warrant a, a Elliot Ness-style crackdown. But it, it's worth, it is worth pointing out, is it not? That these are the tactics that they are committed to. These, these are the ends to which, they, or the means to which they are willing to engage in order to secure their ends. That's the context in which all of this is happening. And so we have to judge it accordingly. If you're dealing with people who are willing to organize criminal activity and fundraise in order to cover their frontline soldiers' bail money to get them out of jail, if that's the context in which these ridiculous, ancient, unsubstantiated, lacking detail, conflicting account accusations are being made, then maybe none of it is worth our time at all. Maybe we should just press forward as if literally nothing has happened because effectively nothing has. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Just listening to that bottom of the hour news is enough to get my blood pressure up. You know, why doesn't Brett Kavanaugh call for an FBI investigation if he has nothing to hide? What? Yeah, you know what? Why don't you have just a direct live stream of your living room? No, even better, your bedroom that goes straight 24-7 to the police department or to the FBI or to NSA. If you have nothing to hide, if you're doing nothing wrong, right? Like, why aren't we all under it? Let's just have an est- an investigation ongoing of every American citizen, man, woman, and child, all the time for, for everything, until we find something. Now, if you're an upstanding citizen, if you obey the laws, if you do everything correctly, if you have nothing to hide, then why would you be worried about that? This is the opposite of how our system works. And it's absolutely absurd that you have people cloaked in power like United States senators who are articulating this kind of un-American, anti-libertarian, deeply authoritarian standard for how things ought to move moving forward. The other the other bit there in the bottom of the hour news that caught me was this notion that Christine Ford wants to testify. She really does. She sincerely, she wants to testify, but Monday's too soon. How is Monday too soon? What is going to happen between Monday and Thursday Right, because that's the the day that they her lawyers thrown out. Well, maybe we'll do it on Thursday. Why? What does she need to get her story straight? Like, what does she need to do that's going to take longer than? Because what's today's Thursday, right? So you got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, four days. 
three, four days. What can you not accomplish in three or four days to get ready to come tell a story of something that actually happened to you? Like, when you think back on events that occurred in your life, would you need three days to prepare to give an account for what actually happened? Something that you experienced? No. There's, there is no circuit. In particular, if it was something that was a defining experience, something that that was traumatic and that you has has had a defining aspect on your character and your relationships and your psychology, something that was burned into your memory, you would not need time to prepare to account for it. You would be at the ready with that stuff. This whole thing stinks to high heaven so bad that it's it's laughable to me that anybody is taking it seriously at all. Let's talk to Greg in Columbia Heights. Hey, Walter, that was beautifully put. That was absolutely perfect. You know, it, it goes to prove that, first of all, you don't have to have an IQ over 86 to be uh, in government whatsoever. No. Um, unbelievable. Let me go to right where I, I told Brad. Um, a beautiful episode that says, well, shows essentially, hey, women never lie about men. Hmm. Back in 1961, you remember Alfred Hitchcock, that show? You remember his name, Alfred Hitchcock Presents? Yeah. There was an episode you can probably find on YouTube. It's called The Gloating Place, G-L-O-A-T-I-N-G, The Gloating Place. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect, it's, it's like a mirror image of what's happening now with Kavanaugh on this Ford. Um, it's unbelievable. I'm sure it's on YouTube. I've seen that one. And then I just thought of something, too. I'm staying here waiting. Um, did you hear that the yearbooks for this uh, Holton Arms uh, High School of her years were scrubbed? Uh, because apparently it's quite the, it was well known as a party school. Um, a lot of bad things going on in that school through the 80s. So um, I know what, what was the name of the, it was, it's a, there's a site that a guy took all sorts of photos before they got scrubbed of those years in those high school books. And I believe it's, it's called, yeah, it's cult of the first dot blog spot. This guy saved a lot of the debauchery photographs of the student body in various parties from from that era. Hmm. So it's pretty. Um, it's I mean, it doesn't prove anything, but no, boy, no. it it uh, something. You're right. It stinks. This yeah. really stinks. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughts, Thanks, Greg. Walter. Yeah, and listen, you know, I I'm not saying that I know for a fact that Christine Ford is lying. I remain completely open actual evidence to an actual case that demonstrates or even credibly suggests that Brett Kavanaugh actually did this. Like, I I am completely open to the possibility that Brett Kavanaugh is guilty of what he's being accused of. All I'm suggesting, which seems to me to be pretty reasonable, is that there's, based on what we know right now, there's at least a 50-50 chance that she's lying, right? Like, at least that much. Like, we have no reason. This idea that you have to accept on, on at face value without any substantiation that a given accusation is credible and you know has should be taken seriously and ought to be accepted is completely nuts. It, it discounts our entire process for getting at the truth, not just in a criminal proceeding. Like, forget about the due process involved in coming to a conviction in a criminal prosecution. A lot of ink has been spilled 
digital and otherwise, in the past few days, making this point that there isn't a law enforcement agency in the country that would take on this case, given the evidence that we have before us so far, and actually try to pursue charges against Brett Kavanaugh, right? But setting that aside, setting aside the the criminal justice legal aspect of it, even in the court of public opinion, even when it comes to the processes we engage in just as free-thinking citizens in the public discourse, in the marketplace of ideas, attempting to arrive at the truth, there is no standard, zero standard, by which you can reasonably conclude that this is an ironclad or even remotely credible case that has been made against Brett Kavanaugh. No, you know, There was a joke uh, post put up at Daily Wire, I think John Justice referenced it this morning, by, uh, I, I, I want to say, Mike Knowles or something with an M Knowles put up this post, and it was the the complete, exhaustive, comprehensive list of all the evidence against Brett Kavanaugh, and it was a blank page. And, you know, it's a joke, but it's a joke that reflects the truth, right? The best satire is something that demonstrates something that's true. And nothing has been presented other than the vague word of a woman who's unwilling to testify Apparently, without all sorts of conditions that make no sense. And they make no sense in the circumstance where this is where this did happen, where it's actually true, and she actually does want to get the truth out there. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's really so many problems with this on so many levels. Uh, the fact that this letter was in their position, possession yeah and I, I'm curious why if you have that kind of evidence why not be forthcoming with that present it right away uh, maybe this is just their Hail Mary to try to uh, sabotage well, Kavanaugh's nomination that's the only reason it's the it, it, that is that it's not even speculation that is the only rational conclusion we can come to. But the other thing here is look, the Republicans just need to uh, keep their backbone, keep their cool, yeah. stick with this guy, yeah. follow the process, and go through with this. But right. the other thing that I found interesting and in what I've seen over time is the poison and poisonous nature and how feminism has been kind of weaponized against men, where men... Are, seem to be in a court situation or in, in legal matters, men are almost put at a disadvantage immediately. The, the attitude of this senator from Hawaii is always yes. Oh my lord! Yeah, I I couldn't even I couldn't even stomach bring bringing those articles onto the show because it drives me so nuts. The the things that this gal is saying, and you're absolutely right. Again, Mike, you, what you're what you're stating is not even up for debate. It's as plain as the noses on our faces that the standard that has been put forward in the Me Too moment is that if a woman says something, it is gospel. And if a man denies it, that just proves that he's guilty, right? Like, it's it's the most Orwellian authoritarian nonsense and you're right it put it doesn't it doesn't just put men at a disadvantage it convicts mankind it convicts men 
at, at the drop of a hat, all that's needed in order to convict men in the court of public opinion under the standard that's been put forward with Brett Kavanaugh is for some woman somewhere to say something happened at some time in some place. She doesn't even have to define the time or the place, and that's it. Case closed. He's guilty. Throw him out. He doesn't get to have a job. He doesn't get to be nominated to anything. He's done. I challenge that, though. Um, where is the moral template? Because there was a, uh, I was reading the editorial page, and, and people were commenting on Senator Klobuchar. Why isn't the same moral template applied to Mr. Ellison? Well, we know why. Consistency in your moral and your standards when he is not being uh, scrutinized. Yeah, we know why. Because because his he his here's the, here's the deal. And I appreciate the call as always, Mike. The reason why Keith Ellison is getting away with it. Keith Ellison is getting away with it. In fact, he very well may be elected the next attorney general of this state. Could happen. Not not unreasonable possibility. He's going to get away with it because he's actually able to cash in on the premise that Harvey Weinstein bet on when he first faced the accusations that started the Me Too movement. You'll recall the the immediate instinctual reaction of Harvey Weinstein when he faced those immediate accusations that kicked off the Me Too movement. The first thing he did to defend himself was donate to a bunch of liberal groups and talk about how progressive he is because he knows he knows that that is currency in this culture. If you can virtue signal what a fantastic liberal you are, you get to rape women. You get to sexually assault. You get to be Bill Clinton. You might even be president of the United States. After having committed rape, right? Like it's there's precedent for it. This isn't even speculative. It has happened. So that's the knowing that Harvey Weinstein banked on it and he was shocked. Believe you me, he was shocked when it didn't work. Wait a minute. I I just donated to a bunch of liberal groups. I just told you how progressive I am. I've been saying the right things for years. I've support all the right candidates and causes and the right party. How how are you guys coming after me? Well, you know what the problem was? He didn't have his his political utility as the patsy for me too was greater than his political utility as a donor and a spokesperson. That's what it was. It was what where can we get the most mileage out of Harvey Weinstein? And the answer to the question was as the fall guy for me too. And so he fell. Now, with Keith Ellison, the calculation is different. Keith Ellison has more political utility as the next attorney general in the state of Minnesota. So he gets to get away with it. This is the reprehensible matrix, the reprehensible prism through which the left does their political calculation. These people are evil. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com. Hear what you guys have to say. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. Let's talk with David in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Walter. Um, I just think that Dr. Ford, she's just totally lying. I First 48 hours, I was kind of wondering, I mean, kind of wondering if she if it was legit. But after that, when all the facts came out, I she scrubs her social media, asking for this huge investigation. And, and the Democrats won't even turn over the letter to the Republicans that she wrote. I mean, what's wrong with that? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, you you want to talk about? So afraid to say to question her. I mean, there's ninety percent. There's no way. I think this woman. I think there should be investigation into what happened and, and how this whole thing was manufactured. <laughs> Who is financing her lawyer? Right. This is a, all a setup. I, right. I'm totally convinced. Well, look. I mean, I, and I appreciate the the thoughts, David. You know that. That, this, that's the thing is, just instinctively, this is not how you behave if if it's legitimate. Like, if, if this really happened and you're sincere in your desire to get the truth out, these aren't the choices that you make. This isn't what the process looks like. It, from, from day one, everything that has happened it has, has taken place in such a way as to call into question the good faith intentions, the legitimacy of the expressed intentions in pursuing this. It looks entirely like a political hit job. Let's talk to Rika in New Prague. Appreciate the call. Good evening, Walter. First time I've ever called in, so uh, uh, handle me gently. <laughs> I'll do what I can. <laughs> um, I'm calling in to, you know, as I watch this Me Too movement, um, I had a situation happen to me uh, back in college, and I'm I'm an older uh, woman, but you know, I went off to college, and um, on my floor, on my dormitory floor, freshman first quarter, mm-hmm. you know, leaving home, um, the the gal at the end of my hall, she faked the rape, and while I was at work, I came home, you know, to my dorm, and there was just cops, and I mean, it was kind of traumatic, you know, for a Fresh, well, sure. you know, yeah, first quarter, and uh, and and you know, I had a lot of respect. She was a, an older, um, she was like a, a sophomore, junior, whatever, but she was older. And anyways, you know, so I mean, she went through all the effort of police reports. I, I mean, we all of a sudden, our whole life changed um, right. on that dormitory. I mean, right. because every man that walked into that dorm was suspect. Sure. And everything, and, and I mean, she even went to the point of engaging in sex that night to make sure that there was evidence. Mm. Okay. And, um, <laughs> wow. It, you know, so, so, you know, all this had been done. She'd been taken to the hospital. Her parents had come in. So, so the reason I share that is this went on for probably the whole fall quarter and into the winter quarter. We lived in fear that there was a rapist on right. our campus. Right. You know, and um, then all of a sudden, um, one day she was packed up, her parents were there, and um, she was removed from campus. And I'm like, what the heck's going on? You know, and well, here it come to find out she had faked the rape. She had gone to the extreme of, of, you know, all this evidence. Yeah. We're, we're out of time, Rika. I, I appreciate the story, and, and uh, we'll keep talking on the topic when we return. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.
We had Rika from New Prague call in and share that story with us from her time in college where a classmate, a female classmate, had faked a rape and went to some lengths in order to create the illusion. And apparently, it's an illusion that was maintained for some time. And the consequences of that, like the environment that it created, the sense of threat, the sense of suspicion, the really unconscionable disruption to people's lives and to the peace of of that campus, yeah, that that's quite a reprehensible act, and that's why, from a biblical perspective, you know, I hate I, I know I hate to be triggering, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up the good book from an from an old time, and not even not even like the the feel good New Testament. I'm going old school. I'm going Leviticus. I'm going. Old Testament, Mosaic Law, Biblical. That's why in the Bible, somebody who brought a false accusation against somebody would suffer the same consequence as if they had been the one who committed the crime. That is called justice. That is a proper incentive towards the telling of the truth. Because if you are willing, if you look, if, and in those days, by the way, lest we forget, in Mosaic times, the penalty for something like rape was death. Like, they went straight to the death penalty for just about everything, if you could prove it, with two witnesses. And so, the, the, the notion for you to falsely accuse somebody of rape in those days, that was attempted murder, was it not? Like, if you... If you were able to successfully convince the authorities in those times that the target of your accusation was guilty, the consequence would be their death. And you would be leveling the accusation with full knowledge of how it was going to pan out. Therefore, that would be attempted murder. And that's how it was viewed. And so that's why, presumably, that provision was in there. Of if you bring a false accusation, we're going to do to you what you attempted to have done to them. Because that's justice. Now, you know, I'll leave the debate for whether we ought to implement or whether we ought to emulate Mosaic Law in the modern day 2018 American jurisprudence for another time. For the sake of our discussion today in the context of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and this accusation that's been brought against him of alleged sexual misconduct 36 years ago. Suffice it to say, we are far afield from that style of tit-for-tat balance in the system. We Not only is there no consequence whatsoever for bringing a false accusation against somebody, but indeed, we have a standard that's been put forward by plenty of folks, especially on the left side of the spectrum, that the man doesn't even get to defend himself. You know, I was sitting here during the top of the hour break. I'm watching. We got Fox News on in the studio. And I'm sitting here watching them tick down the list of demands that Christine Ford's lawyer is making in terms of terms and conditions on whether or not she'll come forward to testify at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. And it's things like, I don't want Kavanaugh in the room. I don't want a lawyer to ask me any questions. 
I don't I, I want Kavanaugh to make a statement first. And like point for point, each of these things is precisely the opposite of how due process works. Right? Like you you get to face your accuser as the defendant. You get to cross-examine them with a lawyer who's on your side in an adversarial process, right? And you get to answer the accusation. What is Kavanaugh going to say at this point? Kavanaugh has to go first to say what? What can he possibly say when the accusation hasn't even been made? Like, the all we know of the accusation is what has been reported through hearsay in the media. Christine Ford hasn't told us anything at all. She hasn't come before the Senate Judiciary Committee and said, this is what I'm claiming happened. So how is Kavanaugh supposed to respond to an accusation she won't make? Furthermore, this completely reverses the burden of proof, right? Because what the reason, and look, the, the, again, I, I, the frustration you're hearing in my voice right now is because it's astounding to me that this that this isn't being laughed off the stage by everyone, by literally everyone, not just Republicans and conservatives, but by the media and by normal mainstream American society. This is this has gotten to the level of such absurdity. It's like a parody. It's like it's not even real. This is like a comedy at this point. The notion that somebody's gonna come up come up with an accusation and then have all these demands that are literally the opposite of due process as conditions, as prerequisites for whether or not they will consent to publicly testify regarding their accusation. Like, where where do you come off, where do you develop the notion that that it's negotiable whether or not on what terms you get to testify? Like, you're the one who's bringing the accusation, right? You're the one who wants something to happen, and so you have to agree to our terms, right? Like, that's... Where's the value? Why do I want? Why is she proceeding as though Republicans want her to come in and it's some sort of value that they have to earn by agreeing to a bunch of conditions that she's bringing to the table? Look, lady, you either want to show up or you don't. So do or don't. End of story. Like what? What? What absurdity is this? It's so beyond the pale that it really ought to be laughed off the stage. And it's, and it's astounding that it's not. At any rate, <laughs> the, the the fact that this is has raised to the point that it is, the danger here, and the reason why we've been focused on it so much this week, aside from the lack of, you know, general lack of other newsworthy things going on in the world, is because the consequences of this are so high. If this, through, if through some sort of machination, this attack stands and the process is actually held up and Kavanaugh is derailed, you know, in the absence of some sort of additional actual evidence that we can't anticipate. If, if what we know at this point is all it takes to throw a monkey wrench in the gears here, you know, sorry to be a little, but I just used the word monkey. That was a, that was a dog whistle. (laughs) Yep. Oh, we live our world is insane. Let, let me, here's a total aside, total random aside for you. I was about to come on the air tonight and talk about Gene Wilder passing away. Thankfully, Brad caught the fact that that story is two years old. 
I saw it on my social media feed today, and I thought the guy just died. I've gotten caught up in old stories like that too. You know, and you so, got to check the date at the top, right? You got to check the date at the top. No, even if the if your friend just posted it and it's like this is amazing or this is so sad, you really need to do a minimum level of fact checking, <laughs> such as looking at the date that it was actually published. So at any rate, the reason why I bring that up is in in the context of Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Ford and all his allegations, is the point that I wanted to make in in my perceived recent death of Gene Wilder is this is a guy whose comedy like if Gene Wilder were were at his heyday today making Willy Wonka and Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein if he was producing that content today he would he would not be this comedy icon he would be condemned he would be lamblasted he would be trashed Right. And why? Because he's so it's so offensive. You know, think about think about young Frankenstein and how how anti hashtag me Too that movie is right. Blazing Saddles. Forget about it. Like we, we it's not even remotely close to what's deemed acceptable. And it's this notion of of appropriateness. What's appropriate? What's sensitive? What is taking into consideration somebody's traditions and their culture and you know the 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 sanctity of their identity and what have you but comedy and gene wilder's body of work and mel brooks body of work demonstrates this any good comedian's repertoire is a testament to the fact that comedy only works comedy is only comedy when it's inappropriate like that's what makes it comedy when's the last time you heard a joke that was <laughs> that was sensitive and tolerant right like it's the whole the reason why you laugh is because it's not something that would be said in normal company in normal circumstances it's off color it's off base it's provocative and we live in a culture now where you can't even you can't even do that because we've we've skewed the cultural norms have gotten so skewed off of anything rational and anything healthy and anything decent that a guy like Gene Wilder, two years past now, wouldn't be able to succeed with the, the work that he brought to bear in his prime, in his time today. And that's the context we find ourselves in, whereby we, we have this situation with Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Ford where all she has to do in this context, in this, by the standard that's been offered, all she has to do is say something happened. And then she apparently, like, had, being a woman who has an accusation, being a woman who has, who, who says something happened to you makes you queen of the universe. You can, from that point forward, you can dictate to the Senate how they conduct their business. You can set terms as to whether or not you're going to testify about your accusation. Like, this is where the world we live in at this point. And what I'm saying is, I'm saying everything that I've set up to now is pre prerequisite or, or building up to this. If this stands, if this tactic works, we can forget about anything even remotely resembling due process going forward. We, we might as well hang it up. And also, we will be surrendering, in spite of the fact that we have, we now have a 
conservative majority on the Supreme Court, you can kiss that goodbye. Because the, the precedent will have been sent or will have been set whereby any future nominee that the left doesn't like will be destroyed in this fashion. And you'll have you'll have people who, you know, the president will call them up, some future conservative president, some future Republican president will call them up and say, hey, uh, I've been looking at you on my short list of nominees for the Supreme Court. And the person will say, no, thank you, and hang up on the president of the United States. That's the world we're going to live in if this stands, if this, if this is all it takes to take somebody like Brett Kavanaugh down. That's the stakes of this. That's why it's so important. All right, I might be done talking about it. 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Antifa activists could be jailed for up to 15 years for wearing masks under a bill introduced by a U.S. congressman. This from CNN. If passed, Bill H.R. 6054 would punish anyone wearing a mask or disguise who injures, oppresses, threatens, or intimidates someone else exercising a right guaranteed under the Constitution. And you know what? As I'm reading this, it sounded familiar. And you're going to love this, Brad. I scrolled up. It's from July. (laughs) Walter! (laughs) I'm sorry I didn't provide more prep for you today. Even so, let's talk about it. The title of the bill, Unmasking Antifi Act of 2018, makes it clear that Antifi activists are its intended target, but the bill's text never explicitly mentions them. The bill, which was introduced by Republican Representative Dan Donovan of New York last month, has drawn widespread condemnation from critics who claim it unfairly targets Antifi activists, while it could embolden the far-right demonstrators Antifa protests against. Now, my thoughts on this briefly old news as it is was that you know look i've i've said in the past and maintain that you know obviously the the actions that antifa engage in are you know they amount to organized crime i mean it's premeditated pre conspired efforts to break the law when you you know what kind of people put on masks and show up to a place with weapons like not decent people, right? Like not good human beings who are engaged in good faith discourse and have a genuine grievance that they're trying to to just air the airing of their grievance. Criminals do that. Thugs do that. Muggers do that. Put on masks, conceal their identity and show up to a place with weapons. And so, you know, the the idea that this ought to be a a factor that's taken into consideration when we're determining the degree of a crime is something that resonates with me. However, the notion that you're going to put somebody in prison for 15 years because they were wearing a mask strikes me as overkill. And perhaps this was like an opening position, like maybe maybe this is the Donald Trump version of negotiating whereby you just throw out there, let's start at 15 years and work your way down to six months or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, 
taking it at face value, little bit of an overreaction here on the part of a congressman, what's his name, Donovan, over there in New York. All right, now this one legitimately is from today, September 19th, 2018. <laughs> I'm going to be checking date lines here from here on out. A black, and it's from the Star Tribune, a black legislative candidate says she feels humiliated after police in Wisconsin stopped her and questioned her while she was campaigning door-to-door. The Capitol Times reported Wednesday that a man called police in August to report a group of black people were sitting in a silver car in his Madison neighborhood. He said he believed they were waiting for drugs. Oh, my Lord. This is that's just so terrible. Yeah, uh, yes, 911. Yeah, um, there are black people in a car in my neighborhood. Only rational explanation, waiting for drugs. You remember that Chris Rock joke? Yeah, no, exactly right. The 9-1, yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, let's, let's think this through. Like, even in the prism of a racist mindset, like, if you are a bigot, even from within that logic, what makes you think that black people are coming to your neighborhood to do their drug deals? Right? Like... I don't understand the rationale for this. Because the police tell them that? Uh, uh, Maybe. Interesting. Interesting notion. The people in the car were Dane County Supervisor Sheila Stubbs, a 71-year-old mother, and her 8-year-old daughter. They were waiting for Stubbs as she knocked on doors to discuss her candidacy for the legislature. Stubbs went on to win the Democratic primary and is unopposed in November. She'll be the first black woman to represent Dane County in the legislature. So there you go. It's, yeah, it's not a great story, not a great experience. I, and I, and I just, I don't understand that level of paranoia. And, you know, let me tell you something else. I don't understand. Noticing that people are even like the, the level of busybodiness, the, the, the whole, like I'm taking my, index finger and middle finger and using them to prop open my blinds to look out the window to monitor activity on my block like i don't get that mentality i had neighbors who lived across the street from me who would do that i mean they were old so i understand why they had time on their hands right but still like even our neighbor who lived next to us understood that this was disturbing to the other neighbors and said something along the lines of you know, I don't necessarily like them, but they're my neighbors. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing. Like, I came home the other night late, you know, after the show. So, you know, we're talking quarter to midnight. It's dark. I'm in a, an exurban neighborhood. And there was a car in the middle of the street backing up slowly. Now... That's weird, right? Like, okay, that's straight. Like, that catches my attention. But even under that circumstance, yeah, that's the end of my, like, that's the end of the story. It doesn't get any more entertaining than there, right? Like, right. I, I, I parked, I went in my house, nothing happened, right? But even under that circumstance, my first thought wasn't call the cops, you know? I mean, you have a right to be, like, you should, if you're aware of your surroundings, you should be able to recognize suspicious circumstances, sure. but okay, there is a car backing up slowly in the street. 
and I hear yelling. Like, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. There has to be more than one thing of, oh, there's a black person in my neighborhood. Yeah, that's right. And? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, such a sad state of affairs. All right. I want to get into, you know, because it's been a while since we've uh, revisited it, and there's some some new developments and analysis uh, regarding the Botham Jean shooting. You may not even recall who that is. This is the uh, man, the black man, who was shot and killed by a Dallas police officer who entered his apartment, allegedly thought it was hers, and then shot him dead in his own apartment and has been treated with kid gloves by the authorities, spent two hours in jail. And uh, the the headline over here at Reason is that, by contrast, people protesting his death spent two nights in jail over last weekend. Closing argument. My name is Walter Adson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk dot com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. Nine activists spent two nights in jail for protesting the death of Botham Jean, the Dallas man killed by a policewoman who had apparently entered his apartment by accident. The officer who killed Jean, by contrast, was released on bond within two hours of turning herself in. This from Reason.com. Prior to Sunday night's NFL game between the Cowboys and Giants, roughly 100 protesters gathered outside AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. They were protesting the recent deaths of Jean and of O'Shea Terry, who an Arlington officer killed as he was fleeing a traffic stop. After the original protest ended... Nine of the marchers started blocking one of the stadium's gates. They then walked to a nearby intersection and locked arms, blocking traffic. The nine demonstrators were taken into custody on charges of obstructing a roadway that is indeed a crime. Specifically, it's a Class B misdemeanor, though it's not the sort of crime that you'd expect to get someone detained for two nights. Arlington Police Sergeant Christopher Cook blames the extended stay on the fact that the Arlington Police don't have the authority to set bond for Class B or higher misdemeanors. Instead, the protesters had to be transferred to Tarrant County Jail and appear before a judge. Each of the protesters had been transferred by Monday night, though they were still detained as of Tuesday morning. Contrast that with what happened to Amber Geiger, the police officer who killed Jean. She didn't turn herself in to the authorities until September 9th, nearly three days after she killed Jean. Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall has said the arrest was delayed because the Texas Rangers, who took charge of the investigation, wanted more time. Geiger was eventually booked and charged with manslaughter, but she was released within two hours after posting the $300,000 bond. She's also been placed on paid administrative leave. Only in America do you get charged for a Class B misdemeanor and sit in jail for two days, activist Dominique Alexander tells KTVT. Only in America can an officer kill someone and a person can block a street and get more time than a killer. Now, I get and to some degree agree with the point that uh, the activist Dominique Alexander is trying to make there. The, the disparity between the treatment of 
these two cases is noteworthy and definitely indicates a problem. However, what I will say that I imagine Ms. Alexander would not is that I don't have any problem whatsoever with what happened to these protesters. I don't have any problem whatsoever with the notion that when they decided that their political grievance was more important than the rights of people who are attempting to attend the Cowboys game or just, you know, get to their get to work or get home or get to a movie or get to a date or whatever it is they were trying to do, that their political grievance granted them some sort of mystical right to interfere in the lives of innocent fellow human beings by blocking traffic or blocking the gates of the stadium. It's entirely appropriate for them to have been arrested for that crime, for that Class B misdemeanor. And I also don't have a problem with the fact that they spent a couple of nights in jail, particularly given the fact that the reason they, that that happened was that their the class of crime required them to see a judge. And judges don't work on Sundays, strangely enough, right? So, you know, I don't have a particular problem with the way the demonstrators in this case were treated. However, the contrast is striking in terms of the real story here is how lightly and with with what kid gloves Amber Geiger has been uh, treated after killing Botham Jean. And, you know, again, the it it's not the the particulars of of what happened that are particularly noteworthy. It's the it's the reaction from law enforcement, the protection of their own. The fact that if it were you or me who had gained entry to an apartment that was not our own and shot somebody dead who rightfully, lawfully lived there, we would not have spent two hours in jail after three days and been able to quickly post bond and then get paid for our trouble on administrative leave. That's not how things would have panned out for us. And the notion that, and this this leads us into our second story here, which is extraordinarily disappointing uh, from from my perspective. Senator Ted Cruz, in response to uh, Bet O'Rourke, who's his opponent down there facing off in the U.S. Senate race in Texas, both weighed in over the weekend on the fatal shooting of a black man by a white off-duty police officer in Dallas on September 6th. This is from the Huffington Post. At a rally Friday night, O'Rourke, agreed with those calling for the firing of Officer Amber Geiger, who shot and killed her neighbor, 26-year-old Botham Jean, after entering his apartment. Geiger claimed she mistakenly thought she was in her own apartment. Now, the issue here is is not whether or not she's honest in that claim. The issue is whether or not that's a defense for what she did, which it's not, right? Like, that's nobody other than a police officer would be able to make that claim and have it taken seriously. There has to be a full accounting for how young black men continue to be killed in this country without accountability, without justice, without these full investigations, without respecting their civil rights, O'Rourke said. That's the Democrat running against Cruz. Asked whether Geiger should be fired, the representative said, I don't understand, given the actions, how anyone can come to any other conclusion. Cruz, by contrast, in an interview with Fox 26 Houston that aired on Sunday, said O'Rourke and other Democrats were too quick to always blame the police officer. I don't think we should jump to any conclusions, the senator said. It may have been just a horrific misunderstanding. You mean homicide? What? What? 
Now, here's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm with Cruz insofar as his, his first statement, right? That people, people do, especially Democrats and especially the left, tend to be too quick to always blame the police officer. But this isn't a general situation. This is the specifically related to what we know about the Geiger shooting. And in that case, the notion that it may have just been a horrific misunderstanding, what, when has that ever, if, if, you, if you take the police officer out of it, and it's you or it's me or any other random citizen, who would ever, you, do you think Ted Cruz, let's put, it, let, let, let's put this spin on it. What if it was an illegal immigrant? Hmm? What about then? What if an illegal immigrant walked into somebody's apartment that was not their own and shot them dead? And then turned around and said, oh, it's a misunderstanding. I thought it was my apartment. I didn't know. Do you think you'd have Ted Cruz out there talking about how it might have just been a horrific misunderstanding? And and we all ought to hold back on our judgment as to what happened and whose fault it was? No. No. And if you believe that, I got a bridge to sell you. New details have been have emerged in the Jacob Wetterling case, and I, I don't know how this helps anyone. For the Star Tribune, investigative mistakes and misplaced efforts in the days, weeks, and months following the 1989 abduction of Jacob Wetterling prevented authorities from making Danny James Henrik the prime suspect in a case that haunted Minnesotans for nearly 30 years. Based on what investigators learned about Heinrich soon after Wetterling's disappearance, such as tire tracks, a shoe print, and a tip that clearly linked the former Painesville loner to the case, Heinrich should have been the primary suspect within 48 hours of the kidnapping, Stearns County Sheriff Don Goodmanson said Thursday. For inexplicable reasons, he said, a task force assembled to find Wetterling and the masked man who abducted him wasted more time chasing far-flung leads and conferring with psychics than tracking compelling evidence close to home. It went off the rails, Goodmanson said, of the investigation in the weeks following the 11-year-old's kidnapping at gunpoint in St. Joseph, Minnesota, in October of 1989. It went off the rails very quickly. It would take 27 years for investigators to circle back to Heinrich and find a way to compel him to admit to killing Jacob and then lead them to the boy's remains in a pasture in Painesville. Goodmanson, who was not involved in the original investigation and became Stearns County Sheriff in May of 2017, held a news conference at the Stearns County Law Enforcement Center on Thursday detailing his analysis of the investigation before releasing thousands of pages of case documents. His presentation, expected to highlight exhaustive work by dozens of investigators over nearly three decades, instead was a pointed criticism of investigative tunnel vision. And, you know, later on it goes into there's a little bit of back and forth and apparently a heated exchange between the sheriff and the FBI agent who was in charge of the initial investigation. And again, I'm not sure who this helps. Apparently the family of Jacob Wetterling was not particularly thrilled with the fact that this information became public and it sound, which, you know, it's everything about this strikes me as odd. I mean, it's important that it became public though, because the FBI's, you could say gross mishandling of this case also came about in something a lot more significant. I don't know, nine 11. <laughs> and we need to expose these holes. And I mean, 
it seems now that law enforcement agencies' mishandlings of serious crimes against people, not not just drug crimes, but against people, are is a systematic issue. We've seen it here in Minneapolis with homicide, uh, rape, and murder cases. The police aren't investigating them as they deserve because they are incentivized otherwise to investigate other cases. And we've talked about that particularly in the context of the Star Tribune series that they did regarding sex assault cases. And you're absolutely correct in terms of the merits of, in a general sense, it's systematic, looking at systematic issues. I guess what I'm getting after is specifically unveiling these details about the Jacob Wetterling case all these years later. I don't know how that contributes productively to that cause, especially when the family themselves are saying, we don't want to rehash this. We don't want to open these wounds. Please don't. And then they move forward with it anyway. And from what I could tell, I mean, maybe I you know didn't read well enough, but it seems as though this was largely driven by the media wanting to have something to talk about that they knew people would want to read. But it's important because part of criminal justice is affecting justice at the individual level, making sure that Jacob Heinrich was brought to justice and the Wetterling family received closure. But part of crim- the other side of that, too, is ensuring the government does its job correctly. And this accounts to that. We need to ensure the government is doing their job correctly. And clearly, they did not. So here's my question for you, Brad. Do you think that any meaningful reforming action is going to take place. No. Okay. All right. As long as we're agreed on that, then I, I take your point on everything else. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit before this week, before things got so dominated by the Kavanaugh situation, is the tendency within the culture, you know, because that's where it starts, right? The tendency within the culture to try to shut down expression, to try to deplatform people and silence perspective. And really, you know, again, just, just as a quick aside, and it's going to have to be quick because we don't got much time left in the program tonight, you know, the the way the marketplace of ideas works, the way that we arrive at our understanding of the truth, you know, because of, because of our limited perception, because we're not omniscient, because we're not God, because we actually have to piece together our understanding of the way things are, what we rely upon in our effort to do that, uh, any good faith, rational attempt to discern the truth, what we rely upon is the perspectives of others. And to that end, the more perspectives we have, the better job we're going to be able to do at discerning what is true. And that includes the absurd perspectives, right? Like it includes Alex Jones. It includes the racists and the bigots and, you know, the the crazy people, the guy on the street with a sandwich sign saying the end is nigh. It includes all of those people. They All of their perspectives are useful in helping us ascertain the truth. Even if ultimately we dismiss their perspective as untrue or irrelevant or incredible, not worthy of of latching onto and lending credence to, it nonetheless, the process of considering the perspective 
and going through the process of determining its worth and its merit and its value and comparing it and contrasting it to the perspectives of others. That's how we arrive at our understanding of the truth. And it's possible for even the most absurd perspectives to provide a value in our search for the truth. Not that we necessarily buy into whatever the absurd perspective is, but that it, it gives us, it provokes us in a direction of thought or in a direction of analysis that brings to light something that we might not otherwise have discovered or come to an understanding of. This is the value of free expression, not free speech. Free speech is the political concept that you get to say what you want without sort of some sort of governmental prosecution, without facing jail time or a fine or, or some other legal consequence. Free expression is the cultural manifestation of that idea. The notion that it, as a society engaged in a good faith effort to understand what is and is not true, we are not going to silence people privately, like as institutions, we are not going to take efforts to try to de-platform folks. That has started in the culture with Facebook and Twitter and Google and all these high-tech companies, and it's starting to make its way into government. It's starting to make its way into attacks upon the First Amendment and actual free speech from the Foundation for Economic Education. California is one step away from going down the unconstitutional road of government-mandated censorship of Internet speech. The California Senate and State Assembly recently passed SB 1424, the Internet Social Media Advisory Group Act. This Fake News Advisory Act is now on the desk of Governor Jerry Brown for his signature. According to Section 3085 of the legislation, the Attorney General shall, subject to the limitations of subdivision, blah de blah establish an advisory group consisting of at least one member of the Department of Justice, Internet-based social media providers, civil liberties advocates, and First Amendment scholars. Oh, it's so nice of them to include First Amendment scholars on their Ministry of Information Committee to determine what is true and what is false. That's lovely. To do both of the following. A, study the problem of the spread of false information through Internet-based social media platforms. And B, draft a model strategic plan for Internet-based social media platforms to use to mitigate the spread of false information through their platforms. Now, the question is, why does government have to do this? Anything government studies, when government studies something, that is a prerequisite to it taking action. And when government takes action, it does so at the point of a gun. It does so under force. This is illegitimate on its face, and it ought to be rejected. And a healthy, sane, rational society would would vote these people out of office and end their political careers for even considering this nonsense. But that ain't the world we live in. It's certainly not the world of California. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.